Support comes from American Dream Vacations, a full-service RV rental agency with rental locations in San Antonio, Houston, Austin, and Alpine to help Texans explore the Lone Star State. More at AmericanDreamVacations.net. There haven't been any votes yet, but we kind of already know what the Texas delegation to the U.S. House will look like in 2024. Today on The Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. I'm Laura Rice. The Israel-Gaza war is challenging what it means to have free speech at college campuses across the country. A visit to a San Antonio campus highlights why. Governor Greg Abbott is set to sign into law a measure that makes illegal border crossing a state crime. What you need to know. Plus, it's tamale time for many folks across Texas. We'll explore the base ingredient, masa, with our go-to taco journalist. And we'll highlight this year's state 2D artist about how he depicts El Paso and what it means to be Chicano. Today on The Standard. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time for this Thursday, December 14th. I'm Laura Rice. The news out of Washington this week has included quite a bit of attention on what's going on in the U.S. House. Members voted to formalize an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. They allege wrongdoing but haven't presented evidence to that effect as of yet. The vote was split neatly along party lines, with even more hesitant Republicans finally approving the inquiry in an effort to legitimize subpoenas in the House's investigation. Then yesterday, we heard from congressional Democrats with the Hispanic Caucus on another big issue, Biden's efforts to gain GOP support for aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan in exchange for stricter approaches on immigration. More on that a little later in the show. Texas has 38 seats in the U.S. House. Most will be filled by the same people after the 2024 election. Of 35 incumbents who are wanting to return to Washington for another term, 16 drew no challenger for the upcoming March primary. For that matter, five of that group had no opponent from either side of the political aisle, so they're already assured re-election before a single ballot is cast. Now, this doesn't mean there aren't races and districts to watch, so writes Todd Gilman who covers D.C. for the Dallas Morning News. He broke down the upcoming election year for the Texas congressional delegation. Todd, welcome back to The Standard. Uh, Laura, it's great to be back with you. So many Texas incumbents seem comfortably poised for the re-election year. Is this always the case, or are we in a unique situation here? Uh, well, it's uh, a little bit of both. Mm. Um, it, it is not at all uncommon for incumbents to pretty much coast to re-election, even if they are challenged in the primary or the general election. Incumbents have an enormous advantage in name ID, in mm. ability to fundraise, um, connections and networks within the district, obviously. Um, somebody apart from someone like George Santos or a lesser scandalized mm. uh, member of Congress, it, it's pretty typical that if you want to run uh, again, you'll win another term. So in, in that sense, it's not all that uncommon. But to see uh, 35 out of 38, you know, we have three retirements, which we can talk about also, but 35 of them are all all but one probably mm. are going to coast to reelection one way or another. Well, you anticipated my next question because there are some open seats this upcoming cycle. That's right. 
Right. We have uh, retirements. They're all in the Dallas area, mm. as it turns out, uh, North Texas. We have Colin Allred, a Dallas Democrat, who is trying to run against Senator Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. He's seeking the nomination for the Senate seat. Um, all of these seats are safe in the hands of one party or the other. So a Democrat is going to replace Colin Allred. Um, Dr. Michael Burgess has been in Congress since he was elected in 2002, uh, and he is retiring. His district is based in Denton. And Kay Granger, a former mayor of Fort Worth, currently the chair of the very, very, very powerful Appropriations Committee, which controls you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of spending, mm-hmm. she's retiring. And both of those are setting off scrambles for, uh, you know, Republican control within Republican districts. In in Granger's district, there's uh, one candidate who is backed by Governor Abbott, and there's another who's backed by Ken Paxton. Um, in the Burgess district, it's really kind of a, a well, it's a scramble. There's there's ten candidates, wow. but of the the most likely ones, it's really a struggle for the heart and soul and direction of the Republican Party. There's uh, Brandon Gill is running. He's new to the district. Um, he is a conservative publisher. His father-in-law is Dinesh D'Souza, who would be very familiar to any anybody who really pays attention to conservative under tree. Um, Gill is also um, endorsed by Donald Trump Mm -hmm. and a lot of money and energy from that part of the party are going to be poured in. Um, There are also a couple of more mainstream Republicans, conservatives who are running, including Scott Army, whose father, Dick Army, held the seat before Mm. Burgess and Scott ran against Burgess and lost in 2002. He's a former Denton County judge. Um, So there's there's quite a lot. There's a mayor of North Lake who's also very conservative. There's a former trial judge it it is uh that one's going to be one to watch yeah but all the attention won't be on north texas because you write uh, the democrat who represents mcallen represente vicente gonzalez uh may also have a real race on his hands is that right he will um the redistricting left him in a in a kind of a odd situation last time around for the first cycle after the lines were redrawn by the legislature. Um, He's in a different district than the one that he had previously represented. He was in a neighboring district. There was a special election. It's kind of a long, complicated story, but there was a woman named Mayra Flores who uh, won a special election to fill uh, a vacancy in in the next door neighbor district. She served in Congress for about five months last year. Um, ran against Gonzalez for the seat that he currently holds, lost to him, and is seeking a rematch. And ah. she's been she's been running ever since she lost the election a year ago. I don't know, you know, whether she has any better shot this year than she did a year ago in that district, but she is really giving giving it a try. Todd Gilman covers Washington for the Dallas Morning News. Todd, thanks so much for your time. Sure thing.
President Biden had his toughest public words for Israel this week, criticizing what he called the country's indiscriminate bombing of Gaza. Meanwhile, leaders in higher education have faced waves of criticism for how they're handling reactions to the Israel-Hamas war. College campuses here in Texas are also grappling with how to handle dialogue over what's happening in Gaza. TPR's Josh Peck reports a teach-in event at San Antonio College has exposed a major rift between students and administrators, and their president. Destiny Espinoza is the president of SAC Student Government Association. She says, speaking for herself and not on behalf of the student body, that campus has changed for the worse under the tenure of its new president, Nadine Gonzalez de Jesus. That I just know that the environment at SAC is not, it's not very calm. Right now it's a hostile environment. I know she's not just affecting students. She's also affecting faculty, staff, administration. SGA and the majority of the college's senior executive team, who worked directly with Gonzalez de Jesus, sent separate letters to the Alamo College's district chancellor, Mike Flores, declaring, quote, no confidence in the president. The two letters were sent within days of each other at the end of October and beginning of November. The SGA letter was public, but the administrator's letter was marked confidential and has not previously been reported. TPR is keeping administrators anonymous over their expressed fears of retaliation due to the letter. SGA's letter said the organization would disengage from all events organized by the president and would cut all direct lines of communication. Espinoza said there's not much else they can do to push for change. SGA, I think, already did everything that we can within our hands and within our limits and our policies because we also want to make sure we are respectful and we follow a proper protocol. The administrator's letter calls Gonzalez de Jesus, quote, untrustworthy, deceitful, retaliatory, and reckless, and says SAC can no longer function under her leadership. Students and administrators say Gonzalez de Jesus crossed the line when she attempted to cancel and then postpone an October 24th faculty-organized event titled Teach-In for Palestine. More than 100 students had come to attend the Teach-In for Palestine event when SAC Vice President for Academic Success Cassandra Rincones stepped up to the microphone to say the event was being postponed. Ethan Wilson, a student who was in attendance, explains. The stated reason given was that several students and other faculty and staff had complained about the use of the word teach-in Teach-ins are informal lectures or discussions that tend to focus on current political events. Wilson said once that was explained to Rincones, she said the phrase for Palestine had made some students uncomfortable, but ultimately relented when faculty suggested changing the name to Palestine 101. The administrator's letter says that Gonzalez de Jesus tried to force Rincones to cancel the event before being convinced to postpone it instead. Gonzalez de Jesus met with SGA the next day to explain that there had been complaints about the event's one-sidedness, which the letter from administrators says was a lie. In her remarks about ensuring a diversity of viewpoints on campus, Gonzalez de Jesus discussed a scenario that many students found alarming. If I invite someone from the KKK, I will also need to invite someone that completely does not agree with the KKK, right? That's Gonzalez de Jesus from a recording made by students. So that we can show both points of view, not to dismiss one side or the other, but to include. Espinosa said the logic of her statement was clear. If we have somebody that's not for the KKK, we have to make sure that we have a group that supports the KKK. A statement from the Alamo College's district acknowledged concerns among students and employees and said they were taking certain steps to rebuild trust. Those include a collaborative effort to update ACD's freedom of expression policies, bringing in a facilitator to guide conversations between administrators, faculty, and staff, and hiring an external firm to investigate the facts surrounding the Teaching for Palestine event and subsequent actions. Michael Valdez, the vice president of SACS SGA, said all the problems they've experienced trace back to Gonzalez de Jesus. The students don't feel like the president acknowledges the situation and what she's done to like our faculty, to our students, to our leaders. 
Students who spoke with TPR said they were aware of the update to the freedom of expression policies, but not the external firm or facilitator. ACD said they would not speak about personnel matters and did not specifically address each allegation made by administrators and students. Gonzalez de Jesus remained SAC president, and ACD's statement said they remain dedicated to addressing race concerns, fostering meaningful change, and upholding their commitment to an inclusive campus community. I'm Josh Peck in San Antonio. Wells Dunbar is here in the studio with me now, as always, watching the talk of Texas. Hey, Wells. Hi, Laura. Well, people sharing their thoughts on the war between Israel and Hamas, with Mm -hmm. many people focusing on the enormous humanitarian suffering brought against Palestinians on our Facebook page. Esther Matthews says, I'm so tired of the U.S. supporting death in Gaza while acknowledging horrific reports of abuse of Israeli prisoners. She asks, have you heard the number 7,000 Palestinian children dead, per reporting from Britain's Independent and scores of adults. She goes on to say, we've let the Israeli government squeeze Palestinians for years, considering them our allies. Now Netanyahu is getting his way, destroying Gaza, not supporting a two-state solution and telling people to move into areas that then are later bombed. Meanwhile, Charlene Hillman Ibram notes that Israel is not vowed to destroy the Palestinians. Hamas has a terrorist group that is using their own people. Hmm. Two Two responses on two sides of that issue that is polarizing uh, the state and the nation. Just one story that we're keeping an eye on this Thursday, however, Laura, and I'll be back with more responses and takes from social media later in the show. All right. Thank you, Well, Still ahead on The Standard, the conference once pivotal to the gaming industry is no more. So what do we make of that? That's coming up. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, conducting cancer research and clinical trials in the pursuit of new drug therapies, innovations in radiation therapy, and advances in screening and diagnosing methods. More at TexasOncology.com. This is the Texas Standard. I'm Laura Rice. Governor Greg Abbott is expected to sign a bill into law that makes illegal border crossings a state crime. It would give local and state police the authority to arrest someone suspected of illegally entering the country. KERA's Stella Chavez reports immigration advocates are worried and they're taking steps to prepare. Inside a red brick office building in Garland, a couple dozen individuals sit and listen to an immigration attorney talk about the latest immigration bill. Will this cause discrimination, attorney Jaime Vasquez asks? Possibly. And what happens if a police officer pulls you over? He tells them that under this legislation, a judge could drop charges if the person agrees to be deported to Mexico. It doesn't matter if the person isn't Mexican. Vasquez and other attorneys say this and other aspects of the soon-to-be new law are problematic. For example, what if someone is ordered to leave the country but has a pending immigration case? The law is written horribly. It's terrible, he says. It doesn't seem like an attorney wrote it. There are too many unanswered questions, says Ruby Powers, an immigration attorney in Houston and a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. I think we're going to see a lot of lack of probable cause 
But by the time an individual gets detained and potentially deported, they might not have the resources to challenge the probable cause finding. Powers says it's unclear if law enforcement agencies will train officers to understand the nuances of someone's immigration status. Some groups say they plan to sue the state to challenge the law. Even if that happens, Powers says damage will have been done. Some people may choose to stay home. Others may leave the state. She suggests scheduling a consultation with an immigration attorney. Also, everyone should have a plan, a place to have your documents, birth certificates, marriage, everything in one place. Be prepared. Have a plan if something were to happen. Gustavo Caballero is from Honduras and has lived in North Texas for two decades. He says this bill provokes fear. Immigrants are going to be afraid to go out, he says. If they don't know their rights, they could get into more trouble or take unnecessary risks, he adds. For 22-year-old Luis Hernandez, this is a painful reminder that he narrowly missed applying for DACA, a status that would have temporarily let him stay in the country. Now this is just making me feel like, hey, now I have to worry at a daily that all I built, everything I worked to, is now being you know, threatened again. Others, like Priscilla Olivares, worries that peace officers will have wide discretion to stop and question anyone who's suspected of unauthorized entry to Texas. Olivares is with the Immigrant Legal Resource Center in San Antonio and says the law could disproportionately affect black and brown people. And so we're talking about Texans that do have lawful status. We're talking about Texans that are United States citizens that will be in danger of being racially profiled, arrested, and even deported. After Abbott signs, the bill is expected to take effect in early March. I'm Stella Chavez in Dallas. Support for coverage of business comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to protecting Texas employers by investigating fraud and focusing on preventing abuse of the system. More at texasmutual.com fraud. And you're listening to The Texas Standard. E3 is no more. The massive industry trade show that once brought game developers, enthusiasts, and tech journalists together in L.A. to see and play the latest video games and meet the creators behind them was last attended in person in 2019. Competition from other events and the loss of major sponsors spelled the end for E3 after two decades. Our tech expert Omar Gayaga has fond memories of the show, and he's here to help us understand what its passing from the scene might mean for the game industry. Omar, welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, tell us a little about E3. The E, I understand, stood for Electronic Entertainment, but it was really a gaming trade show. Is that right? Yeah, I was very much focused on video games. And, and for a while, uh, it really was the biggest convention for video games. All of the major video game publishers, the console makers, your Sonys, your Nintendos, they were all there dropping announcements every day, showcasing new hardware, revealing video game trailers, demos, get, you know, putting these games in front of people. Um, it was really sort of the center of the universe of gaming uh, every year, every summer. And you got to go. You covered E3 for the Austin American Statesman when you worked there. What was going there like for you as a journalist? 
Well, like a lot of other tech expos of the day, like Comdex or the Consumer Electronics Show, uh, those were mostly in Las Vegas. I believe E3 was, was primarily in Los Angeles, but it, it was just overwhelming. It was just a gigantic spectacle. Uh, these these companies were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to make their presence known. You know, they, they would bring in celebrities. They would they would have booths with huge you know displays, and um, it was really uh, the place where they they would drop big news bombshells too, you know, like we, we've got a new console we're bringing mm. out or we have a, a huge sequel to a video game. Um, so, you know, it was, everybody was sort of glued to the news when, when that was happening in the gaming world. Well, you, you touched on this a little bit. You know, I think the tech show that most people have heard of might be CES, the huge Vegas-based showcase where they reveal everything from giant TVs to, to quirky robots. E3 wasn't quite like that. So, so what was the vibe? Who tended to go? Yeah, at the end of the day, as CES, a consumer electronics show, is is sort of an industry event. It's it's where executives get together and make deals and, and talk to each other. Um, E3 was a little bit broader than that. It, it did bring in gaming executives, but also smaller publishers. It brought in actual gaming fans, gaming press. Uh, but after a while, it felt like those components, those parts of E3 were being overshadowed by competing events, events like, like PAX, which is more for gamers, the Game Developers Conference, which is de for developers. Even South by Southwest Gaming was popular mm. for a while, and that had a lot of major publishers that, that were brought to Austin. Um, so I, I feel like a lot of the thunder was being stolen uh, from E3, you know, piece by piece, and, and all these different components were being done better by other competing forces. So you think that's why E3 died, that it was just being too diversified, bits of it were being taken all over the country? Um, no, I, th I think the major game publishers and online streaming and social media killed it. I, I think what happened mm. was when gamers could see every moment of E3 unfolding in front of them online, you know, they could stream it and watch it. Um, they began to get very vocal and critical about every little thing. You know, they were very picking apart everything. So when you had Nintendo and Sony and Microsoft all bumping up against each other and competing for attention, uh, I think they just decided, you know, why are we doing this? We could be doing our own events and not not be bumping shoulders and not be compared, uh, you uh -huh. know, over a week. So it made more sense for them to do their own events. And so when they started to drop out, I think that's when E3 scaled down. And then COVID hit, and that's what really killed it was yeah. just, you know, they were never able to recover back from trying to be an online event. Uh, it, it just didn't work out. Does E3's demise tell us anything about the gaming industry that it supported? I, I think gaming got too big for it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I think uh, gaming has become so broad. There, there's multiplayer gaming. There's casual gaming. There are still big gaming events. You know, you still have PAX. You still have DreamCon uh, overseas, the Tokyo Game Show and GamesCon. Uh, we have the classic Games Fest in Austin every year. The Game Developers Conference is still going. I, I think it just, it's become more fragmented, and I think it's become more specialized. You know, you, you these events are so big that you can't just have one big event that encompasses everything. I think it's, it's just gotten uh, very spread out. Omar Gayaga writes about the tech industry for Wired and elsewhere online and joins us here each week on The Standard. Omar, thanks so much. I sure appreciate it. Thank you. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, exploring renewable and sustainable energy sources to power a clean energy future. Stories of research at endeavors.tcu.edu. From the Texas Newsroom, I'm Matt Thomas. Texas once again led the nation in executions in 2023. Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider says a large 
portion of the prisoners put to death suffered from some form of mental illness or cognitive disability. Texas put eight people to death over the course of the past year. It was one of only five states in the country to conduct executions. Kristen Hule Cuellar leads the Texas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, which just issued its annual report on death penalty developments in the state. Six of the eight men put to death in Texas in 2023 had significant intellectual or mental health impairments, and those included intellectual disability, brain damage, uh, suicidal ideation, clinical depression, and other diagnoses of mental illness. In many cases, these impairments were exacerbated by years of neglect and abuse. Cuellar says that in several of the trials, the juries were not presented with this potentially mitigating evidence by the lawyers representing them. I'm Andrew Schneider in Houston. Democratic Congressman Joaquin Castro of San Antonio says the Biden administration should not give in to Senate Republicans' attempt to tie immigration restrictions to foreign aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. The right-wing appetite for fear-mongering to use immigrants as political scarecrows cannot be satisfied by this bill. They will still say that Democrats are for open borders. They will continue to lie. And yet you will have sacrificed the safety and the future of millions. Castro is speaking at a press conference held by the Hispanic Congressional Caucus in Washington on Wednesday. Republican demands would curtail humanitarian pathways for migrants coming to the U.S. The lawyer bill for impeaching Kim Paxton is going to come in at about $4.3 million. That's according to a report in the Dallas Morning News. Paxton was impeached by the Texas House but later acquitted in the Senate. SpaceX plans for Brownsville to be the main base for its Starship operations. That's according to the company's general manager of its Boca Chica site in South Texas. At an invite-only event hosted by the city of Brownsville, SpaceX leadership discussed 2024 and beyond. The city of Brownsville hosted SpaceX general manager Kathy Leaders at an event called a post-launch coffee talk on Tuesday morning. The Brownsville Herald reports that SpaceX has already applied for its third and fourth launches from the company's Boca Chica beach site, according to Leaders. She added that the company is building a second launch pad, a million-square-foot factory, and more employee living in office space. The city of Brownsville did not respond to TPR's questions about the event. I'm Gage Davila in McAllen. I'm Matt Thomas from the Texas Newsroom. Support for these Texas headlines comes from the Charles Butt Foundation, pursuing a more equitable and prosperous future for all Texans through education and community partnerships. Learn more at charlesbuttfdn.org. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm Laura Rice. Masa's uses are vast in Mexican culture, and it's almost literally the glue that holds some dishes together. But the time of year it's most revered is around Christmas. For more on masa, we're speaking with taco journalist and host of the Tacos of Texas podcast, Mondo Rayo. Mondo, great to talk with you. Hi, it's great to be back, and it is Masa season. <laughs> I love it. So for those who don't know or maybe just haven't paid attention, sure. what is masa? Yeah, masa is basically dough mm-hmm. uh, made from corn or wheat flour, traditionally uh, just made with water salt, depending if you like manteca or oil. And it's used to make tortillas and different forms, tamales, mm-hmm. basically the, the dough base. So is it just a couple of ingredients, it sounds like? Is it easy to make at home, or am I underestimating this? Actually, once you get into it, it's fairly easy. What it is, it's um, it takes time. 
So if you're willing to put that time in, then after a while, if you're a home cook, it's actually fairly easy. It all depending on, you know, how much time this is. This is kind of one of those things where you have to take the time mm -hmm. and, and be with the family and cook. And it's, uh, you know, definitely not an all day thing, but definitely say uh, one of those things that you should take your time. Because yeah. you're cooking for your family. So you mentioned family. You mentioned time. Is is this why around Christmas time, masa is king? Or are there sort of other factors that play into this? Yeah, I think it's that's part of it for sure. Because, you know, when you think about Mexican families, you're looking, I mean, you're talking about tamales mm. season, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's a communal type of gathering that happens where uh, there's definitely the masa making and then there's, you know, making the fillings mm -hmm. are, whether it's meat paste, pork or beef paste or, or veggie, preparing the corn husk. And so it's like everybody has a job, mm -hmm. you know, so y'all line up, even the little ones have, <laughs> have a job. So I think that, that that is definitely a way that we kind of come together and we all honor and learn from usually one of the matriarchs mm -hmm. in the family, right? They're the ones, the abuelas, the moms, the tias that are really focusing, making sure that the masa's done right and actually massaged to perfection. <laughs> well, you mentioned tamales, and that is what I think of first when I think of masa. But but you also said tortillas. What yep. else uh, has masa that are some of your favorite things to eat? Oh, for sure. Well, obviously, you know, the base of any taco is a mm. tortilla. We, we talk a lot about that, but there's also like, you know, from a tortilla, you can make a tostada. Right. From the dough, you can also make chalupas or even tear up some tortillas for some migas. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe some, some things like gorditas also. They're basically like sandwich pockets, if you will, stuffed, you know, with your favorite ingredients. Something similar to that is pupusas as well. Mm -hmm. They're kind of like gorditas, but they're actually sealed. Um, like an empanada stuffed. or how like yeah, yeah. like kind like yeah another one is an empanada uh -huh. you know you can have meat based empanadas you can also have sweet empanadas like empanada de camote sweet potato empanadas it all depends on uh the apparatus you want to eat your your fillings with whether it's a tortilla or a sope a huarache and some of them are literally literal like it's how you form the dough mm -hmm. and it's cooked on the comal Aguarache is, you know, if you don't know, it's it's a sandal, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> and so the base kind of looks like a guarache, you know? <laughs> Are there is there a lot of variation in in masa? I mean, do people have like super prized recipe, or is it pretty pretty basic? And the and the, everything else is, you know, the spices mm -hmm. and the other things that go in different. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think for in general, there's a very common mm -hmm. common thread around the masa, whether you use wheat flour to make, say, like flour tortillas or corn, you know, to make the corn tortillas. But then there's also like you can get creative because you have like blue corn, mm -hmm. you can have yellow corn, you can have white corn. It all depends on, you know, what you're trying to do, how creative you're trying to get. But, you know, in general, I would say even for, say, for tamales, you know, it's pretty, pretty standard to use the general recipe that calls for that corn corn based uh, masa. All right, I have one last quick random question for you, Mondo. Yeah. In New Mexico, I love they call if you get both red sauce and green sauce, they call it Christmas. I've never heard yes. that in Texas. Do you do you hear that around here? <laughs> no, but it's funny because yeah, in New Mexico, I love New Mexican mm -hmm. food too. 
that refers to the chilies, you uh -huh. know. Um, so it's red chili or green chili. So you get both. It's Christmas because um, the chili, the the colors are bright. Mm -hmm. And and um, but you know, not so much over here. Over here, you do see kind of like banderillas, mm -hmm. um, where you have like the different sauces that reflect the color of the Mexican flag. Right. You know, the the green and the white and uh, and red. We've been speaking with Mondo Rayo, taco journalist and host of the Tacos of Texas podcast. Mondo, great to speak with you and happy holidays. Thank you. Thank you so much. Support for Tacos of Texas comes from BarbaQuest, an original series by the beef-loving Texans at the Texas Beef Council. BarbaQuest recipes and new episodes now streaming at beeflovingtexans.com. It's the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Every year, Texas honors artists across the state in categories like poetry, music, and visual art. Well, today on the Standard, we're highlighting an artist from the El Paso area named Gaspar Enriquez, who was selected as Texas State Visual Artist of 2023 for two-dimensional art. Enriquez's portraits are deeply rooted in Mexican-American culture, and he's known to draw inspiration from his El Paso community. At 81 years old... His work has been shown across the country, including at the El Paso Museum of Art, the Smithsonian, the LBJ Library and Museum in Austin. And he recently partnered with the University of Texas at El Paso to create his own gallery in far west Texas. We're joined by Gaspar Enriquez himself, the Texas State visual artist. Uh, Gaspar, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you. Congratulations. What was your initial reaction upon being named Texas State Visual Artist of the Year for Two-Dimensional Art? I understand you might have been working on a on a, a piece of art at the time when you got the call? I sure was. It, it was a flabbergasting surprise, to say the least. I bet. What did they tell you? That, that you have been selected the top visual artist for two-dimensional art? What did they tell you? That I was one of the artists. There's the two-dimensional, and then there's a three-dimensional artist. I was elected the two-dimensional um, artist of the of the year. You know, you, you mentioned uh, there's this two-dimensional and three-dimensional. You've sort of worked in both mediums, though. I think you're probably best known for uh, a lot of your um, uh, two-dimensional work, though. Very realistic. I've seen I've seen some of your work in the past, and it is truly stunning. Truly stunning. I saw a beautiful triptych once. You probably remember the one. I think you did it. it. Must have been in the 80s or maybe the late 70s sometime. I don't remember exactly when, but it was a triptych that was I Love You, and it had this uh, beautiful woman uh, depict. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, sure, yeah. That that one belongs to Cheech Marine. Ch oh, really? Of Cheech and Chong fame? Right. That must have been how I saw it. We've talked with him in the past, and, and I know he's a real art lover. So it's coming together now. Tell us a little bit about how your El Paso upbringing influenced your work. I understand you grew up in the barrio near downtown. Is that right? That's right. I was born and raised in it called Segundo Barrio, which is an English second ward. But it's uh, walking distance to Mexico, to Juarez. My grandparents used to live in Juarez. I would just walk all the way to where they lived and go visit with them. And what much for a young, young person to do, but you certainly found something to do, it sounds like. Uh, I sure did. 
That's, that's what I used to do when I went to uh, visit my grandparents, just draw, draw, draw. <laughs> Did you ever, at that young age, imagine that you'd be doing this for a living? No, I never did. You know, there, there's always the encouragement of parents, although my, my parents did not discourage me from doing that, but uh, there's always the, uh, the stereotype that um, don't become an artist. You do anything but an artist. You're going to start to death. But, of course, it seems like that uh, what you saw as you were growing up became a real theme in a lot of your art. And over time, you sort of put these people, the communities that you were part of, on a pedestal as more and more people kind of became attracted to your work. And I think you usually use, what, acrylic and uh, airbrushing techniques? Is that right? That is correct. Did you feel that that was important for you to do, or were you just documenting your world? Well, it, it was because, you know, um, I was teaching. I started teaching after 10 years of, well, living in California and other places. I um, came back and started teaching in the same neighborhood I grew up in. So I knew the neighborhood very well. I knew the students, what their obstacles and were in the in, in the neighborhood because I just went through the same thing when I was growing up, and that's when I started uh, uh, portraying some of my students. It was uh, a means of portraying actually my my youth through them, through their experiences. Tell me a little bit more about your decision to stick with uh, realism. I know that you have uh, done some sculptural work in the past. But this seems to have become your signature, these very realistic portrayals of the Mexican-American community and the culture. I have been doing, I used to do uh, portraits in oils. And the reason I picked up airbrush is because uh, in oils, you are able to blend in the values quite well because the, the uh, oils are in dry as fast. Mm-hmm. But I became allergic to the solvents, so I had to pick up acrylic. Wow. And, and, and I wanted that blending that I used to be able to do in, in oils, mm-hmm. and that's why I picked up airbrush. Did you find yourself gravitating to certain themes, or did you feel that you you had a message that you hope viewers take away from your body of work? My whole uh, mission is the eyes. I try to borrow the souls of my subjects so that people that look at them can feel the need to explore what that person is about. Because my my uh, themes are uh, mostly Chicano Cholos and Tirilone. And so I wanted to People to see them, try to find out who that person is and what is their background. When I did them and they were exhibited at the museum, uh, I took some of my students to look at them. And and when they saw themselves, you could just see their self-esteem light up. And that was my whole mission. 
Well, I understand you recently partnered with the University of Texas at El Paso to create the Gaspar Enriquez mm-hmm. Cultural Center in the West Texas town of San Elizario. Um, I hear you did a lot of, uh, of work on that place yourself. What was your motivation to create this center, and what's the process been like? Well, the process has been very extensive. A couple of uh, buildings that were run down, they were actually uh, dilapidated. Uh, San Isario has a lot of history. It goes back to the 1500s. So I hated to see the, the history just disappear. So I decided to acquire them, and it, it was a rest- restoration process. And a chance for it to be there for future generations. Uh, yes. I would like to invite everybody to come to San Isario. It's uh, really a historic place. We've been talking with Gaspar Enriquez, selected as the Texas State Visual Artist for Two-Dimensional Art in 2023. Well, Mr. Enriquez, congratulations on all your many accomplishments and uh, on your new project there in West Texas. It's exciting. We're going to have links to pictures so you can check this out for yourself. Unforgettable artwork. It's at texasstandard.org. We'll have links and more. Mr. Enriquez, uh, thanks so much for taking time to talk with us on the Texas Standard. It's, it's been a real honor. Thank you. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas. Families can save for tuition, room and board, books, and other qualified education expenses at eligible schools nationwide. Learn more at texascollegesavings.com. This is the Texas Standard. I'm Laura Rice. This next story is about data on suicides. The number of suicides in the U.S. hit a record high in 2022. That's according to new data by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Of those deaths, an increasing number involved firearms. That troubling trend is reflected here in Texas, reports Stephen Simpson, who covers mental health for the Texas Tribune. Stephen, welcome to the Texas Standard. Hello, thank you for having me. First, let's talk numbers. How do suicide rates in Texas compare to national trends, and how do those, I guess, uh, compare to recent years? Well, currently, Texas ranks in the middle of the country for suicide deaths by firearms. At least 2,644 people last year in Texas took their lives using firearms, which is approximately 9 per 100,000 Texans. Um, the national average is about eight per 100,000 Americans, um, which is one of the highest levels since 1968, just for the nation overall. And the rate for Texas is one of the highest since 1999. You mentioned um, gun-related deaths already. Did you say what percentage of suicide deaths in Texas are gun-related? Uh, so it's kind of varies a little bit on that information, but what we can tell for sure is that around 2,600 of the suicides that occurred in Texas related to a firearm. But what that kind of involves a little bit data-wise can kind of get a little hazy. Mm. Are there groups that are overrepresented in these suicides? Um, Military veterans in particular are at risk. Um, The reasons why behind this, it can be varied mental illness, particularly PTSD, of course, can be linked to military veterans. The 
particularly if you'd be unhoused and various things like that. But the most at risk is military veterans, which is a large population here in Texas. I guess, and is it and is it true that that for gun suicides specifically, that 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 group is at high risk? Uh, yes, yes. Just because mainly they have the ability to have firearms, they have the knowledge of it, and most of the time they've already had the either previous access to these firearms or have ways to get access to them due to the military training or background that they have. What did the experts you spoke with say is behind the increase in suicides overall? Well, they can't particularly pinpoint, but with the pandemic, there were signs of this increasing. Um, with like right after the pandemic, it jumped in like I guess a lot in that number, but the numbers have been increasing over time. Um, there's various reasons for this. It could be the the way the pandemic made some people felt, the job situations, um, some of the way the mental crisis of how, how the future was viewed. But there's not exactly something they can pinpoint as a reason for these suicides climbing up. And any speculation about um, the number of gun suicides uh, specifically? Uh, I guess particularly there has been some views by experts and advocates that maybe we should have some more measures to prevent the access of guns being so prevalent, particularly here in Texas, where there's no background laws and it's very easy to get access to guns when someone is in a crisis. For example, if you have a suicidal thought here in the state of Texas, your ability to get a weapon during that moment is very easy to do. Well, you you, you anticipated this already, but are there are there states um, elsewhere in the country doing something Texas should emulate? Yes. So experts have mentioned, one, that there should be sort of a waiting period when you purchase a firearm. For example, if someone's going through a crisis and they go to get buy a firearm from a store or a gun owner, they would have to wait an undetermined amount of days. It could be 10 to 5 or 7 amount of days till the gun is in their ownership. It's almost having like a cooling off period that would be involved. The second is more of kind of like a, a storage laws that would kind of encourage parents or gun owners to make sure their weapons are locked up and stored in a safe place at all times. Stephen Simpson is mental health reporter for the Texas Tribune. We'll share more of his reporting at TexasStandard.org. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And if you or someone you know is in crisis, you can call or text the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number is 988. And you're listening to the Texas Standard. Wells Dunbar is back with us now watching the news and your reaction to the things you've heard on today's show. Hey, Wells. Hey, Laura. That's right. Good to be back with you. Well, we're hearing from folks chiming in about some of the stories we've been talking about today, including that one about midway through the show, how uh, groups of immigrant advocates are now uh, working with folks, preparing residents for this law that's going to uh, take effect that makes illegal Mm -hmm. entry into Texas a state crime. Of course, Texas uh, controversially wading into uh, immigration policy here. Here's what some folks are saying on our Facebook page. Tyler Malloy says that making other humans illegal for existing is the beginning. 
what will Texans do? Stand idly by. And Mario Modesto, also via Facebook, calls out what many people uh, as well are doing, uh, chiming in on the, uh, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for <clears throat> here? Excuse me. Uh, the uh, selective enforcement of such a law. He says, mm. all I can say is that, uh, can I be stopped and asked for my papers because I look Latino? Mm. Would someone from uh, Nordic European countries be stopped to check on their status? I don't think so. And of course, um, uh, that uh, those uh, trainings are in place, but I uh, think that is still uh, a highly controversial issue mm. and one that is uh, certain to be the subject of some legislation, yeah. I believe, as or well. Or some uh, litigation. Litigation, yeah. yes. Yeah. It's already been the it's, subject yeah. of legislation. Yeah. Yeah. Now on to the litigation. Yeah. Uh, well, chiming in on some stories that we talked about earlier uh, in the week, interesting comment here from Savannah Arnold, uh, also on Facebook, who says the Biden administration participated in the COP28 summit and the world became a slightly better place for it, referring there to the annual conference on uh, climate change mm-hmm. and uh, policies to mitigate that. So she applauds those measures, but says now it's down to the follow through. Yeah, interesting developments there yesterday. CNBC reporting uh, that uh, government officials from nearly 200 countries agreed uh, to a deal to essentially transition away from fossil fuels. Uh, This after some previous proposals that did not go uh, nearly as far were met with uh, some backlash there. Mm -hmm. So we heard about that earlier in the week, I think from our oil and gas expert uh, there, Matt Smith. Uh, But obviously a developing story. And as our commenter noted, one that's really going to come down to the follow through and whether or not... uh, uh, these nations can hit those targets. Mm. I saw also some more developing news, I believe, in the hour um, since we've been on air, reflecting uh, that uh, calls back to, I think, some stuff we heard about in the news roundup, how the U.S. House has finally passed that defense bill uh, right. that was um, uh, that Held was working up. its yeah. way through Congress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so but on its way uh, essentially to the president's desk at this point, that $886 billion uh, defense bill uh, headed, to, uh, headed for uh, Biden's signature um, after the this uh, sort of last-minute revolt here, uh, according to reporting from the New York Times, where uh, further right members of Congress seeking to uh, uh, load it up with things like abortion restrictions mm. and uh, items relating to uh, transgender care, etc. Uh, but yeah, that military funding cleared here in time for the holidays, I guess you could say, Laura. Something we'll have to continue to watch. Wells Dunbar monitoring the talk of Texas. Thank you so much for joining us today. Leah Scarpelli is our director. Casey Cheek is our technical director. We've got a great team and we've got great listeners. Thanks so much. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Waldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and the Cynthia and George Mitchell Foundation. Thanks so much for listening to the Texas Standard. KUT and the Texas Standard are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm David Brown. We'll see you tomorrow. Support comes from Austin Water, helping residents reduce water use while protecting Austin's precious resource during the drought conditions with My ATX Water. Providing near real-time water use data, tips, and leak alerts. More at austinwater.org.